0: Well, in the year uh, two thousand and six in Argentina, there was this humongous crazy bank robbery and this was not just any bank robbery this was these guys were like masterminds these guys were criminal masterminds and as any bank robber might tell you uh if you 're going to rob a bank you've got a plan right you got to make a plan and so these guys in Argentina Buenos Aires, they spent months digging from the city sewer drain one of the city sewer drains into the basement of this bank and they spent months doing this and so the day of the bank robbery came and they went in through the front door with their weapons they held 19 people hostage and they just began loading safe deposit boxes into this tunnel they had created and just unloaded this is a very actually quiet um no shots were fired at this bank robbery. In fact, uh, we actually learned they actually allowed phone calls for the hostages. Go ahead and call your your parents, your relatives. Let them know you're okay. We're not going to shoot you um, or we're holding a gun to your head. And uh, we also read that um, they even sang happy birthday to one of the hostages in this bank robbery. Now, can you imagine that picture? Like, get on the ground. Do we have any birthdays today? Right. Like, how does that work out? And you're the guy, you're like laying on your face, and you're like, over here? And uh, so they're happy birthday to someone in this, in this bank heist. And after a while, police surrounded the building, and uh, then they stormed the front door of the bank, and all they found were the 19 hostages. And the reason why is because the guys escaped through the, through the tunnel they had created, and there were no shots fired, they got away with an estimated 25 to $70 million worth of goods. That's kind of a weird estimate, too, isn't it? Like, they asked the bank, the bank owners, like, how much do you think was stolen? Uh, somewhere between 25 and $70 million. You don't know exactly? <laughs> you don't know how to count and you work for a bank? Okay. Um, so, and here's the crazy part. And they got away. They got away. And you have to go to school tomorrow. And your parents have to go to work tomorrow. Does it seem right to you? Does it seem right that the criminal at times makes off with 70 mil and your parents are barely scraping by for some of you in the room? Is it right that the cheater at school gets a 4.0 while the honest hard worker gets a 2.5 and can barely keep that 2.5? Is it right that the person who uses relationships and is destructive in relationships, that person never seems lonely while the person who just wants a godly, Christ-centered relationship never seems to find one? Does that seem right to you that um, the girl who only cares about outward beauty and cares nothing about character and following Jesus is the one that gets all the attention while the girl who... Um, cares about following Jesus never seems to get any attention. Is it, does that seem right to you? That these kinds of things happen in our world? Christians often find themselves in these kinds of places. And it's in these kinds of trials where you and I are tempted to shake our fist at God and ask why. The times when you're doing the exact right thing and yet you're struggling. And you see the criminal, the cheater, The dishonest person getting away with it and seeming successful. And they seem fine. And you seem like you're just a mess. And this is where Christians can find themselves. And so James is writing to some Christians that are in a similar situation. Uh, We talked last week about trials, meaning various trials. This could be suffering of any kind. And today we're talking about how you and I are often tempted in the middle of those kinds of trials. So think of the trial as like the external circumstance. The temptation is the inner heart attitude in the circumstance. So today we're discussing um, temptation in trials and what that looks like from James chapter 1. Go ahead and turn to James chapter 1, verses uh, 9 to 18 this morning. James 1, starting at verse 9. And James writes in verse 9, he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, just look at, the, whenever the Bible uses pictures and images, you need to like, make sure you focus in on those and ask what's being discussed here. So I don't have to explain to you here in Temple, Texas, scorching heat and withering grass, do I? You guys know what that looks like? I mean, it's supposed to be 91 degrees today, and it's October, right? That's not cool, right? And yes, I said October, that is a month. Because it's like October and September blended. That's what happens in Texas anyway. You got it. Yeah. So I don't need to explain to you scorching heat and withering grass. I can water my grass Monday at 11 a.m., 2 p.m. It's withered in the middle of summer in Texas, right? What James is trying to get you to understand here is that um, when you look at rich people, people that have everything at their disposal, and you see their success – um, know the scriptures warn. If that's all that person's life is about, then it's going to be just like scorching heat on withered grass. It's going to be like a flower that blooms quickly and then just fades away. And it says the rich man himself will fade away in the midst of his pursuits if that's what his life is all about. So he's, he's talking about the rich and the poor. And he's getting at The idea there are some poor Christians in this part of the world. There are some poor Christians trying to follow Jesus, but they're still poor. And they're being exploited by the rich and the wealthy. And many of the rich and wealthy were not believers. And to the poor, it could look like, wait a second, God, this isn't fair. We're following you and we're suffering for it. And these people are exploiting us and they're not following you. How is it that the rich man has success and, and wealth and status and they're disobeying you and we who are poor we find ourselves in hard times even though we're obeying you and so they're in this dilemma in this part of the world so again it looks like James has changed the subject doesn't it because last we talked about trials and suffering, and now he's just talking about money, and wealth, and poverty, and it looks like he just goes from one thing to another, but there's a connection here, because much of suffering involves money, right? Much suffering involves money, or lack of money, usually lack of money. And you and I, in the church especially, we tend to see the poor as less than, for some reason. We tend to see People that have less, we see that person as less. Last week, several of our students went to a place called Feed My Sheep, which is located over on East Temp- in East Temple, and the, that place exists. It's amazing. that place exists because they churches will will go and feed the homeless and feed those, those that are in need um, daily there. If someone in our town needs a place for a hot meal, they feed people. Uh, two to three times a day, every day of the week. And this is all being done through churches that are donating their food, their time, and their energy. And so many of you went last week, about 10, 15 of you guys went last week to go to feed my sheep. And a few times that I've been there, what will happen is I'll be at the front door just greeting people. And last week, a man walked in, that I see at the 815 service almost every Sunday over in the main building. And I know him. I know his name. And my first gut reaction was, th- I didn't want to embarrass the guy. I just wanted to, at first I thought about saying, oh, you're here to help us, you know. I didn't say that. Good thing. But he walked in, and I said, hey, man, I said, do you still go to the early service? He said, not, not right now. I can't go right now. But I said, so, so how are you doing? And he's like, man, I'm struggling. And you can just tell his head kind of hung in shame embarrassment, because he knows I know him, knows I knows to go to our church. And for people that have less, it's not just that people like us look at them as less, but they actually feel less. And so he hung his head, just kind of embarrassed about a situation, and yeah, yeah, I, you know me from church, but I also come here for food sometimes too. And so we had a good conversation about all of that. But the question is, why? Why why do you and I see people that have less as less than? Why do you and I see people that have more as more than? What is it about stuff? I mean, it's just stuff. What is it about possessions that make us think high of someone else and think low of someone else? Because the poor can be tempted, and the rich can be tempted to see our possessions as our identity, and so James, when James says a statement like, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, he's talking about his position in Christ. He's saying that even though you have less, you have so much in Christ. You're to boast in your exaltation in Christ, in your identity in Christ. And you might ask the question, well, I thought, I mean, this is kind of weird, right? The Bible is telling us to boast in something? The Bible is telling us to boast I thought boasting was sinful. I thought boasting was wrong. Well, not if you're boasting in your position in Christ. You and I should never boast in our possessions. We boast, we should boast in our position, which is in Jesus Christ. So the Bible commands us to boast. If you're boasting in your position, which is your your identity in Christ, you and I don't get our self-worth or our value from what we have, but from Christ himself. And so the poor, for the poor, this means that even though you feel lowly, that in Christ you are exalted. And I know when I talk about money in this room, of course there are many families of various backgrounds in this room, but I know for many of you personally, money may not be the issue. But you might feel like you lack And others have in lots of other areas of life. I'll give you some examples. How about personality? How about sense of humor? If you're a quiet, introverted type of person and you see the person that walks into the room and everyone just loves that person, everyone laughs when that person's around and you just feel withdrawn, you feel introverted, you feel like, I don't have that, I don't have what they have. So sense of humor, personality, how about just looks? There's a standard. It's a false one, but it's a standard in our world that says this person is attractive, this person's not as attractive. And so maybe you feel like this person has and you don't have. Maybe it's intellectual ability. Maybe you're you feel like you're in the middle of the pack somewhere, and you see people that are just they can just put things together like you never could intellectual ability. Maybe it is athletic ability. Have you watched someone perform athletics and just go, man, how in the world do they do that? How does that person run? Why can't my legs move as fast as that person's legs? Why can't I jump as high as that person can jump? And so they have and you don't have. How about friends? Some people just are really good at making friends, real friends. And you just feel like, I just don't know what that's like. I don't, know what, I don't know what that's like. I don't feel like I have those kinds of friends that that person has, and you, you feel like they have and that you lack. How about something as simple as the car you drive, right? I, I wish I could show you guys a picture of the car that I had to drive. I couldn't afford a car. My parents were the kind of parents that were like, you're going to buy your own car. And so from like age 12 to, like, 19, I was saving money to buy my own car, right? But before I got my own car at the age of 19, which was a piece, um, my parents let me borrow their car. And so from age 16 to 19, I had to drive the family car. Do you know what the family car was in my family? It was a maroon station wagon. And if you're like, what's a station wagon? Just think a less cool minivan. All right. Yeah. So which speaking of like minivan, like who named that? Right. If you're trying to cater to the male population, let's call this a minivan. Right. That's not going to cater to the male gender. So we drove a station wagon. So that meant when I was going to meet my friends, I'm pulling up in the station wagon. That meant going to take my girlfriend to a movie. I'm, I'm pulling up in the station wagon. That was my car, my, my, my parents' car. And then um, I'm at my friend's house for his 16th birthday. And, and so we're celebrating in his backyard, and we've gotten him some gifts, some small, regular gifts. You get, you get your friend, right? And then his dad says, hey, we have this gift for you, Josh. And so he's wait a minute, close your eyes. They bl- they blindfold him. And then they drive up in the backyard this beautiful brand new sports car. And I'm 16 and he's 16 and I'm looking at this and going, "Oh my gosh. I feel like a loser. My station wagon's parked out in the front of the house. It's not even mine. Thank God it's not mine." Right? And I'm just So envious and so jealous, and I got to ride in that car with him a lot, and I would look at all the the lights and the buttons and just be like, wow, this is amazing. Like he had, okay, this is going to make you laugh. He had power windows. I didn't have power windows in my station wagon. I had to go like this. I had to exert effort to roll the window down. I would work up a sweat rolling down the window in my car, right? Old school, an old school car. So the car you drive, listen, it's so easy for you guys to have your identity wrapped up in something as simple as a hunk of metal out in the parking lot. And you think, yeah, look what I, look what I drive, or you think you're like, you're, you feel lowly because you don't drive what, what someone else drives. And so the question, do you struggle with envy, wanting what someone else has? For some of you, when certain people enter into the room, you sit up and take notice like, oh, I've got to watch what I say. i got to watch how I am. i got to watch how I relate. Because you want what they have. You feel like you're low. You feel like they're above you. In fact, I would say to you that um, I think I'm going to get political for like five seconds. I think Donald Trump's whole campaign is based on envy. I'll tell you why. Because here's his whole thing. If I could mimic his speech, it would be this. I'm rich. I'm successful, I'm a somebody, vote for me, and I'll make you rich, successful, and a somebody. That's it. That's his whole deal. And the whole thing is garbage. The whole thing is garbage. And so the temptation, listen, the temptation for those people that lack is if I just had this or if I just had that, this is how we think, right? In fact, um, there have been articles published, not even by Christians, these are published by non believing people, are, are writing articles right now about what social media is doing to everyone. And talking about envy and talking about coveting. And they don't use the word coveting, but they would say, we're, we're, we're getting depressed because we see what others have and we don't have. And we're constantly being b- b- bombarded with images of what everyone else's life looks like. And our life doesn't measure up. I mean, let's be honest. If you are going through Instagram and your best friend or one of your friends is on the beaches of Hawaii under a palm tree and you are getting eaten by bugs in the brown waters of Galveston, like, you're going to feel a little jealous about that, right? You're going to feel a little envious of, oh, man, like, I thought this was a good vacation and now it's just, I just, I don't think it is anymore. And so you feel lowly, you feel like someone else has and you don't have. And so you're envious and jealous and we covet. So the the point of verse 9 is the lowly brothers to boast in his exaltation. You boast in your position not in your possessions. You boast in your position not in your possessions. On the flip side of this, there's the rich. Because James is saying something kind of strange. He's saying the rich should boast in their humiliation. What in the world does that mean? That the rich should boast in their humiliation? How do you, what does it even mean? What he's getting at is, even though you are rich financially, you need to see that you're bankrupt spiritually. Even though someone is well off, they have all the things the world would want and crave, they need to know that they are spiritually Bankrupt. And everything that they have means nothing when it comes to their their relationship with God. They have no advantage towards God just because of what they have. You ever notice that whenever someone has plenty, they tend to see their need, not see their need for Jesus as clearly. This is why the Christ, the rich man, it's hard for the rich man to enter the kingdom. The reason why is because the rich. People that seem to have these things, we tend to not see our need for Christ as quickly as someone who may not have those kinds of things in their life. There's a scene from a movie called, uh, an old movie from way back when called Fight Club. This is um, the guy, uh, the main character played by Brad Pitt. Tyler Durden is his name in the movie. And he says this quote, he says, you are not your job, you are not how much money you have in the bank, you're not the car you drive, you're not the contents of your wallet, you're not, I had to fill in the blank there with a bad word, uh, you're not your khakis. And some of you are like, khakis? Why is that on that list, right? Like, what are khakis? Well, they were a thing back in the 90s, so. Um, but you're not, you're not your appearance, you're not your clothing, it's not your identity. And here's the funny thing about this movie. This movie is, is nothing close to being a Christian movie But they still acknowledge, listen, they still acknowledge the reality that you are not your stuff. Your stuff is not your identity and should not be your identity. Even an unbeliever can acknowledge, I think, some of these things. And so in this passage, I think we see a a reversal of sorts. He might say it like this, the gospel on the ground turns everything upside down. The gospel on the ground turns everything upside down. And here's how it happens. Because the poor gets exalted, the lowly gets exalted, and the person who has, if they put their identity in what they have and who they are, that person gets humiliated. God's plan A is humility. God's plan B is humiliation. You guys have some discussion questions Uh, Do your first three questions at your tables. Just your first three questions this morning, right now. All right, let's reel it back in for a minute. We're going to move on to the next verse here, looking at verse 12. And if you're a person that loves... If you love to write things down, you love outlines, then the next few verses will be uh, you'll like this. So we're going to show you how when you're in these places of being tempted in the middle of a trial, you're tempted to see yourself a certain way, you're tempted to see God a certain way in the middle of those kinds of trials. And so I want to show you this morning how from verses 12 to 15, you're going to see some truths about ourselves that we need to rest in um, when you're in the middle of something like this you're going to see in verses 16 to 18 some truths about who God is as you think through these kinds of trials. So look at first at verses 12 to 15. It says, "Uh, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So again, he's showing us now how there's a link between these trials that we find ourselves in and finding yourself tempted in the middle of the trial. Think of the trial as the external circumstance, the temptation as the inward attitude of your heart in the middle of the trial. So, the temptation is an opportunity for deception. So you need two things. You need to know some truths about yourself and some truths about God in the middle of this kind of a thing. When you and I are tempted with sin, who do we tend to blame? Who do we tend to blame whenever you and I are tempted with sin? We tend to blame God. We tend to blame Satan. We tend to blame someone else we tend to blame a circumstance or a situation and this verse is really clear he says when you are in verse 14 he says when you are when he is lured and enticed by what by his own desire. Now, if you've, if, you've, if you've ever been like me, you've said things in your own heart. You've said things like, God, why did you make me struggle with that kind of sin? If you don't want me struggling with that, God, then why'd you make me like this? Right? You ever said things to yourself in your own heart like, God, if you didn't want me looking at those images, then why'd you make me that I like that? Or God, if, if you don't want me with that person in a relationship... Why did you make me to where I like them? You ever find yourself saying those kinds of things? Like You may not say it out loud, but in your heart you think, well, I mean, if God wanted me to not be like this, then he wouldn't have made me like this. But this verse is really clear. You and I cannot blame God for our sin. We can only look at ourselves. And verse 14 is really clear that you and I are drawn away and tempted by our own desire. And so... Whenever you're dealing with this kind of temptation, you have to understand that the responsibility and the weight, before you come to know Christ, the weight of your sin is squarely on your own shoulders. You can't blame someone else. You can't blame circumstances. You can't blame God. You can't even blame Satan. It's your own desire, our own desire lures us away, and entices us towards sin. Now, I want you to look at the pattern of temptation uh, in verse 15. Verse 15, I think, is profound. It says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. There's a really powerful image here of what sin and the, the pattern of de- temptation looks like. He, it's, it's a picture of a baby, which might seem kind of odd. Like when, when a baby's born... We feed the baby, the baby grows, the baby get, turns into, into an adult. And so the picture is vivid. It's it's like when you and I are, are enticed by our own desire, we begin to feed sin. We begin to feed sin over and over and over again. And here's the image, I think, that most of you have in the room of sin and temptation. Most of you picture sin and temptation like a boiling um, kettle on the stove and the pressure just kind of builds and builds and builds and you feel enticed towards sin and you think in your mind if i just remove the lid of this kettle and the steam can just kind of the, the sin can kind of get out of my system and you think that that's going to fix it you think that's going to alleviate the power of sin and that is not the picture at all we see in scripture of the power of sin the power of sin is the more you give in to temptation you are feeding the monster and the monster will grow. And the monster will destroy you. The monster leads to destruction. And I know when I give you that image, you know just what I'm talking about. You've seen it firsthand in your own life. You've seen sin have that pattern. You've seen sin have that kind of power. That the more you feed it, it does not go away. The power does not dissipate. It gets worse. Because you're feeding these habits, and feeding into these kinds of things, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. There's a quote by Martin Luther I love, and he says this, you can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from building a nest in your hair. I love Martin Luther. He's awesome. But just just picture that for a minute. If you're walking down the street with a friend of yours, and a bird with a bunch of sticks, comes and lands on your head. You're not going to just stand there. You're not going to stand there and wait, and your friend's looking at you like, hey, what are you doing? And you're like, I just want to see where this is going. You know? Like, it's not going to be your response. Your response is going to be, swat, like get away, right? You're going to be like reactive. In fact, those that went to New York last year, you know, that we, we serve in Jackson Heights, and there is this really, really busy street, and there is a train track that is above the street. Like they put train tracks above streets. Not crossing the street, it's above the street. And there's these little birds that, that will sit there, little nest up above, and they just like they just drop, drop, drop. They just poo like all over the ground, right there in front of the sidewalk. As you're about to cross the street. And everyone knows where that location is. So you know that if you're pushing the button to cross the street, you kind of push the button and you kind of stand back like this. And you wait for the light to go and you kind of run through and you're, you're gone. And this one time, a couple years ago, we're standing there waiting for the light to change. And I'm waiting and waiting. I'm talking to a student. I forget who the student was. And I feel it right on my cheek right here. Just, and I instantly knew what it was, and I I just knew, and it was like the part of the movie where everything turns into slow motion, and it was like, no, and I had this water bottle in my hand, and had a flip top lid, it was just like a spray water bottle thing, and I kid you not, within like half of a millisecond, I had the water, it was like in a gun holster, it was like, and it was like on my face, and I was like, no, right? Getting this out of my face. And it was so quick that the only person you saw it was the person I was talking to. And they're all like, Dave, like, what in the world? Where did this come from? And, I, and I'm like, dude, you got to roll, man. You got to roll with things like that. You know, you got to be ready, you know? And no one else even saw it. It's like my face is wet, my shirt's wet, and I didn't care because I was clean, right? And here's the deal: If a bird even gets close to your head, you're swatting. You're, you're like, no, no, no. And this is a reflex. And this is the kind of sin reflex that I think you and I have to have. So when you're at school, and there's a guy or there's a girl who says, "Hey, hey, come look at this," there is a sin reflex that you have, and you say, "No, I'm not gonna. I'm not going down that road." There is a sin reflex when you are alone with your boyfriend or your girlfriend and things are moving in a bad direction. There's a sin reflex. You say, no, this is not right. We're walking out of the house. We're calling for accountability. There is a sin reflex that you and I have to have. You cannot let sin linger. You cannot let sin tarry because it will destroy you. It will destroy you. Another guy says this quote. He says, Habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it is a sapling. A hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. When you and I let sin linger and tarry and stay as a part of the consistent way in which you live, It will destroy you. It will become so big in your life that you can't even, don't even know where to begin when you're faced with that kind of sin. I had a friend in college, and we were good friends. He lived with me and another guy, and, uh, and he struggled just immensely with pornography. And he struggled because his dad was a pastor, and he told us that his dad... He was a pastor all of his life, all all of Zach's life. Um, Zach found pornography consistently and continuously in that home, and it was his dad's. And his dad was a pastor. And so at an early age, he was exposed, and it became this addiction for him. And Zach would ask us to pray for him. He would ask us to pray over him. He'd ask us to for God to take this away. And because, and I empathize. I was like, "Man, every guy struggles to some extent. With every person struggles with this to a certain extent." But man, I saw this monster in his life that he just could not contain because it started at such an early age for him, and he just kept giving into it and giving into it and giving into it. In fact, it led him to some pretty destructive behavior. He went. He was an intern with us at the church he worked at at the time, and he happened to know the password of someone else's. Um, password on their computer he's at the church late one night by himself and he logged in under someone else's password so he wouldn't get caught and looked at images on the church computer and they found it and they thought the other guy did it and they questioned him and he's like I wasn't even there I wasn't even at th- what are you talking about and it was only through security cameras they were able to figure out that Oh Zach came into the church used someone else's password and logged in, and he was the one. And it was just disastrous. The whole thing was disastrous. And at first the church wanted to say, all right, that's it. Like he's, We're kicking him out. And my friend and I, we said, no, we need to keep him in this house. He may not work right now as an intern, but we need to keep him here because he needs help. He needs help. And so when, when you and I let sin just take root and grow, this is what can happen. It can lead to destruction. And it can become this full-grown monster in our life that you have no clue what to do with if you don't cut sin off at its conception. So the main thing you need to know is that this truth about yourself, you got to understand your state of sin, that this is your own desire leading you away and enticing you. The second thing is these truths about God, verses 16 to 18. Here's what it says in verse 16. It says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or a shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So in the middle of a trial, the biggest temptation we're going to have, one of the biggest temptations we're going to have is to question the goodness of God. And because of that, we fall into sin. And I know some of you are in this room, and the things I described at the beginning of this talk, the things I described, not just money, but the good things in life you feel like you don't have. And you're hurting, and you feel lowly, and you feel like others are up here, and you're down here. And you think that God's holding out on you. And you're taking matters into your own hands. Or you're about to take matters into your own hands. And you think that you're entitled. You think that, God, I am owed these things. And you think God's holding out on you. And right now, you're either walking into this downward death spiral of sin, of taking things into your own hands, and you need to know this, that this passage says very, every good gift is from above. That his, He is good. That His goodness is permeates this world and if you look hard enough it permeates your life. And so if you're in this if you're in this position questioning God's goodness you need to know this this morning remember the first sin was not just eating a piece of fruit off of a tree what was it it was questioning the goodness of God. It was questioning God's goodness. This is why whenever I study the Bible, and I've given you guys this question before, when you study the Bible, you need to always ask the question, what does this passage say about God and his character? Every passage says something about God and his character. Because the thing that will lure you off into sin more than anything else is you questioning whether or not he is a good God. That is at the root of every sin that you and I commit. So trials, these kinds of trials can lead us into temptation. I want to just tell you this morning that I can't stand up here this morning and give you some step-by-step. This is how you fight sin and temptation. This is not a formula. But I want you just to just think for a minute this morning what I've told you. That there are some truths about yourself. There are some truths about God that James wants us to know. And these simple truths are going to be the things that you must meditate on, chew on, reflect on when you are in the middle of these kinds of trials and temptations. You might be in a trial, but do not let the trial become a temptation to you in your flesh. Let God do His work Knowing who you are and knowing who he is and knowing what the cross has done to set you free from the power and the guilt of sin. You guys have a few more questions to go through. Go ahead and answer your last few questions at your tables.